are standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. <laughs> After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my go to my grave, testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and uh, then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope you've had a great week so far. Time to get to the main event. Now, I have match- mentioned many times over the course of this podcast just how much Minnesota and uh, the NWA, uh, and not the new NWA, but back back in the day, um, the NWA was a huge part of the history of professional wrestling in this country. Uh, they feature a lot of it with uh, on the Power uh, Show with uh, NWA. Now they love that that you know those back back in the day when they had all that uh, in studio wrestling. But some of the biggest names in professional wrestling came from Minnesota and were a part of that organization. And uh, this week, uh, we've got uh, someone who has been often referred to as the voice of Minnesota wrestling. Mick Karsh is joining us. So let's get to my conversation with Mick. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, folks, you know, I have long been fascinated by the early days of professional wrestling. And what I mean by that specifically is the days before Vince McMahon and the WWF, WWE took over the universe uh, the days of territories, you know, the powerhouses with the NWA, Mid-South, so many others, including the AWA. And on the podcast this week is a man who is not only known as the voice of Minnesota wrestling, but also, whether he intended to become one or not, a great historian of those great days of professional wrestling. Uh, he's been a columnist, a photographer, a ring announcer, and commentator. Uh, he's done it everything. He's done it all. Welcome, Mick Karsh. Mick, thanks for coming on Primetime. How are you? It's uh, it's a pleasure, Sean. I'm doing very, very well. You know, you mentioned that I had done pretty much everything in the business except yeah. make money. So yeah. it, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Nine out of ten isn't bad. But, yeah. uh, it's uh, it's great to be with you. Hey, yeah, hey, uh, great to have you. I know it took us a little bit to get you. You've been under the weather a little bit, but I'm so glad that we were able to... Uh, get this together. And you mentioned, you know, making money. We just had uh, uh, Sabu on and uh, he's another guy that was uh, just a tremendous performer, uh, you know, just really stood out among some of the greats. And yet he was saying, you know, I just, I just was never in the right place or something happened. And I, you know, (laughs) he just turned buckets of money away and Hey, you know, it happens. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I certainly could. Uh, we could probably talk about that in a bar over a beer sometime, but we've got a lot of other yeah, stuff to right. talk about first. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, w- let's start with Minnesota because, uh, you know, I know that's uh, very near and dear to your heart and, of course, the AWA. But, you know, uh, when you go back at the history of, of uh, professional wrestling, and especially those days, Minnesota, uh, my God, it, there were just so many greats came out of that area. And, uh, you know, I've had quite a few on, and it's, it's, it's just amazing to me. Uh, and and, the, and it's, you can kind of explain it in a sense that the AWA and, and Ganyo and, and all these guys lived there, and then their kids grew up there. But why Minnesota? Why do you think Minnesota has played such a, a rich part of professional wrestling history? Well, you know, obviously you have to start with Vern. Uh, even before Vern was involved in the AWA promotion end of it, um, you know, when he got more power, et cetera, Vern was already so hugely popular here in the 1950s. And he was working at the same time, guys like Leo Namalini and Butch Levy, guys like this that came out of the University of Minnesota. 
they all kind of came out at the same time in the 50s. And then, of course, you know, Vern was, uh, he became a household name on the yeah. Dumont Network out of Chicago in, in the 50s. And then in the early 60s, of course, when he took over the promotion with Wally Carbo, then he became such a powerhouse and opened up his training facility. And then everybody just followed. I, I, the first mm-hmm. guy that comes to mind with me is Larry Hennig. Uh, Larry was, you know, a little bit younger than Vern, but Larry uh, went to Robbinsdale High School as did guys like, uh, you know, Rick Rude and, and uh, John Norton, etc. Yeah. But it just started to follow that all of a sudden Minnesota became a wrestling powerhouse. And to this day, I suppose you could, you know, toss Brock Lesnar into the mix. And of course, Brad Ringens from back in the day and, you know, the Gagnon, Brunzel and et cetera, et cetera. God, it just happened. Yeah. And then everybody started gravitating to Minnesota and Vern's camp if they wanted to get into the business. You know, and it is just amazing. And and we kind of talk about, we, we got into that new generation and, uh, you know, all those people, uh, you know, Joe Laurinaitis and, uh, you know, Barry Darso. I mean, the, the list goes on. All these guys went to high school together or in, or in that same area. But before that, and you mentioned, and I, and I don't know if it was geography. That's just where Vern Gagne decided that's where he, he planted his flag, you know. But uh, I think we need to back up even a little bit more on that and uh, talk about, you know, the way these territories were formed. And we talk about the NWA, which a lot of people just see as this wrestling organization. But it was kind of the, uh, I don't know, the standard bearer of that, that alliance that all of these territories had at one time. And they, they all worked together. It was, and, I, and I often describe it as kind of like a mafia territory, the way they divided it up without, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the whacking guys and doing that kind of thing. But it was kind of the right. same way that organization was, was put together, right? I mean, uh, do you, tell me a little bit about from you know, how that all worked back then from, from what you remember. You know, the NWA was definitely the powerhouse, and I'm going to use Minneapolis yeah. as an example. Minneapolis was part of the NWA territory. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a wrestling collector, and, you know, part of the stuff that I have in my collection, I'll see these letters that went from Fred Kohler or whoever that was an NWA powerhouse back in the day, Sam Muchnick, on and on and on. And, yeah. you know, you described it, Sean, as a little bit of a mafia situation. Obviously, you know, that would be, you know, a little bit over the top, but in the sense that the NWA really was, was a powerhouse, they were a governing body. They had tremendous power, tremendous say so, and the cities and towns and areas that were under their jurisdiction really had to fall into line. If they didn't, they fell out of favor with the NWA. So it was, it was really interesting because Vern and the AWA were really the first group that had the guts and, and the balls, I guess, to splinter off and say, okay, you know what? That's enough. We're going to do our own thing here. We think we have enough of a fan base. We don't need to be under your jurisdiction anymore. And that sort of opened up the floodgates because then you had the old, you know, WWWF and, you know, all the groups that followed WWA with Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder, but I think in the sense that uh, you know, if you look at history, Vern and the AWA and Wally Carbo were the first group to really cut the ties, you know, if you will, with the NWA. Very, very interesting. But to your point, the NWA was a tremendous powerhouse, and they had a stranglehold on the wrestling business for you know many, many years. Yeah, and, and a lot of people don't understand that because they look at what Vince McMahon did and they went like, oh my God, he just took over all these territories and didn't care what anybody else thought. But, you know, before that, in in many ways, it, it was already controlled like that across the country because uh, people respected their, their territories, as they called them, and they would exchange talent. Nobody crossed over into other and did shows in their territory. And then uh, you did have people that there were promoters out there said, you know, I don't want to be part of this. And they, they tried to do different things. Most of the time they were, they were shut down. But Gagne, as you mentioned, was one of those who was able to really pull it off initially. And, and it wasn't like, it wasn't as though they just stayed in Minnesota. I mean, they had eventually, you know, shows all over the country. And and I, I think that that's something else that people don't realize either that, you know, they were in Milwaukee, they were in Chicago, they were in these cities, you know, even out west in Denver and in California and San Francisco. So it wasn't like Vince was this incredible visionary. It was not that these guys didn't have the same ideas. He just 
uh, pulled it off in a, in a major way uh, years later. Yeah, there's no question about it. And, you know, you mentioned the AWA's influence and the yeah. power that they had. And it's interesting because the modern-day wrestling fan, if you really don't, you know, go back in time as a wrestling historian or a longtime fan, you don't realize just how how good and the expanse that the AWA had. You know, you made a very good point. Some of the cities that you mentioned, and, of course, they went into Japan uh, when yeah. Bockwinkel and Stevens were the AWA Tag Team Champions. They went to Florida, uh, Winnipeg, and, and of course, uh, Leo Namlini that I mentioned before uh, was promoting for them out in San Francisco, uh, <clears throat> North and South Dakota, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Chicago. And it, this was like consistent every single month. All the AWA major cities were running and they would run the circuit and there was a time when everybody was selling out, you know, they'd you know, draw 12,000, 13,000 people in Milwaukee. And the next night they're in Minneapolis, they're drawing another 10 to 15,000 people and the same in Chicago. So the AWA, I would say from probably, oh gosh, middle 1960s, at least until the early 1980s was an amazingly successful promotion. Yeah. And they all had television, and and folks don't think that they weren't thinking the same thing when these super stations came along and cable. They wanted to do the same thing. It's just that uh, you know Vince was ahead of the game on that. Had been uh, taking syndicated uh, programming and buying, literally buying airtime across the country. But they all they, they all had these ideas. It's just that uh, Vince is the one who ended up on top of, of it all. But I I think it's some reason I like to to bring that up is because. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people think that it was just Vince, that Vince all had this idea and, and, and they all were like, whoa, how can he do this? Well, they had the same idea. He just pulled it off. Absolutely. I, I agree with yeah. you hundred percent. Everybody had the vision, but nobody did anything about it. And then, you know, whether you love the guy or hate the guy or whatever, Vince really rolled the dice. You know, yep. in the, with the first WrestleMania and what have you. And then all of a sudden, all these other promoters, suddenly it it became uh, an abhorrent thing to do to take over all the territories. When you're right, Sean, they all thought about it, but nobody ever pulled the trigger. Yeah, and some some did try to some extent, but uh, they didn't really get anywhere. Otherwise, we'd be uh, probably talking about a different organization than WWE. But let's get back to AWA, because uh, in its heyday, uh, it was incredible. And... uh, and I mentioned because, of course, I worked with a lot of those guys, Kurt Hennig and uh, Rick Rude and all those guys. But before them, there was this other generation. You mentioned Larry, uh, uh, Larry the Axe. Um, there were just some uh, great professional wrestlers that are, are still legends to this day. Who were, who, were the some, who were some that really stood out to you during that time? And you're growing up at this point uh, oh, when boy. these guys were all there. So t- tell me about some of those days uh, of the AWA and what, what it was like back then. Well, it was it was absolutely amazing, and they were not only was it a, was it a time for the the talent, but the fans were believers at the time. So if you yeah. went to one of these house shows, uh, the heat, the electricity was incredible. Uh, even before it actually became the AWA, Minneapolis was a hotbed. I go back through yeah. some old wrestling programs. Anybody who was everybody would come through the Minneapolis territory. But mm-hmm. when I started following wrestling, which goes back all the way to 1960. I guess the the guys that I think about most as you look at the AWA roster, the Crusher, of course, uh, Crusher yeah. Wasowski. Uh, yeah. Before Hulk Hogan and the AWA, it was Crusher. And you had Billy Robinson, and Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, Wahoo McDaniel, uh, Jeff Ports, Horst Hoffman, Baron Von Raschke, the Hennigs. I mean, the list is absolutely endless. Ric Flair, of course, uh, you know, started to cut his teeth in the AWA. Uh, the list is endless. They were a powerhouse. Edouard Carpentier, Bill Miller, uh, the Destroyer, Dick Meyer, uh, Billy Red Lions, Red Bastine, on and on and on. Dick the Bruiser. Um, these are the guys that I grew up with. And again, you know, for probably the, the the period at least sixty-five through seventy-five or so, those were the mainstay guys. Uh, I yeah. mentioned the Crusher. Whenever any heel would take over the territory and run roughshod for six, seven months, you know, the call would always go out to the Crusher. Well, you know, and Crusher would come in and they'd have their cage match or their lumberjack match or whatever it was, the big blow-off match, fill the building, sell it out. 
Uh, and again, it was a different era where everybody believed, and uh, it was it was phenomenal. Uh, memories for a lifetime. And I'm just fortunate that I had a chance not only to watch these guys, but to rub elbows as well. You know, and, and it, 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 it couldn't have gone on forever, but you hear people talk about those studio shows, mm. and there really was this incredible local feel to it that people really felt a part of it, whether you were there or you were watching on, you know, uh, local television, whatever your your uh, your viewing area was at the time, but what do you remember of those house shows and uh, and the atmosphere? Because we know what it's like today. It's uh, it's rock star status when you go to these exactly. and there's ten twenty thousand people. But back then, uh, what was the atmosphere like in in those house shows? I would say, let's take a look at the Minneapolis Auditorium, first of all. I mean, this is a building that comfortably would seat, you know, maybe eight, 9,000 people. And on a big show where you had the blow-off match or the lumberjack match or whatever, the building was filled to the rafters. It was intimate, and I keep, you know, referring to the people that believed, and that's what created the atmosphere. I mean, there were times when I would literally sit in the stands, you know, before I got into, you know, the, the journalism part of it. And I'd watch people and I'd count them up, 15, 20 people getting tossed out of the building for fighting yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and missing the main event. Uh, I, I was there at the auditorium uh, one night when a fan got into the ring. I remember uh, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch were wrestling Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens. And you would think, you know, you got four heels. Well, the fans took to Rhodes and Murdoch as the baby faces. And at one point, uh, Bockwinkle and Stevens were, were getting the better of them. And, you know, a fan hit the ring with a knife. And all of a sudden, you got bodies going all over the place. And referees are decking people. And security is in there. And that was the atmosphere. And there was no pyro. There was no, you know, <laughs> commercial breaks. There were, you know, if you held a sign up, you know, up in the balcony, the usher would come take it down because you were blocking somebody's view, let alone encouraging you to hold up a sign. Uh, it, it was just it was just amazing. And unless you lived through it, through that era where it was the suspension of disbelief, you have no idea uh, the electricity and the absolute fervor and just intensity that the fans had. I remember, you know, just as, as kind of a... Uh, diversion here or a little segue bill miller uh dr bill miller wrestled here in the awa in the early 1960s under a mask as mr m and he was a great collegiate wrestler friend of Vern Gagne's. but they were doing a program where uh, m had the title and in august of 1962 he's going to drop the strap to Vern, and then he would unmask well, you know, the finish, Vern goes over, and the old Minneapolis Auditorium was set up in such a way that the balcony, literally, if a wrestler w would walk underneath the balcony out into the hallway, a fan could reach over and touch him on the way out. Yeah. So Miller, who was like 6'6 and 300-plus pounds, is walking out. He's just wrestled. He's got his mask in his hand. And because the balcony was so low, a fan, if you want to call him that, took a 2x6 plank a wooden plank that had a one-eighth inch steel spike at the end of it. Jeez. And he hit Miller on top of the head as Miller was going underneath the, the overhang, the balcony overhang that led to the locker room. And well, long story short, the fan got away with it. And I saw Miller probably 12 years later. Uh, he came in again in 1974 in Minneapolis. And I said, do you remember the incident? He said, do I remember it? And he leaned forward and he showed me this, deep scar that he still had on his on his head wow. and he said i'm a veterinarian by trade and i remember when this happened first i thought i got shot and then i went into the locker room and i literally put my thumb in my head and felt my brain not to be graphic yeah. uh, but that that would I, I think that that speaks to how nuts the fans were at the time. And that carried yeah. on into the 70s when they were taking shots at the ring at Bobby Heenan and Nick Bockwinkel in Chicago. Uh, literally, you know, shot. Uh, Roddy Piper getting stabbed. Ole Anderson. So definitely different time, different era. Uh, just apples and oranges. Yeah, but it is amazing. And, and a lot of people have told stories like that on the podcast. I mean, Hacksaw you know, talks about when he was down in Mid-South and you know, if they poked their head out at the crowd before it's, uh, they you know, started the the uh, show, and 
if there was six or eight fights, they knew it was going to be one a really great night because, <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of how they measured the crowd. You know, how many how many brawls there were and how many they had to throw out before they started. But it was, I mean, people were just, uh, it, you know, it, that was their that was their wrestling. I mean, they uh, they were very very uh, uh, defensive when it came to you know uh, talking about uh, those those different territories, and and they they were all like that. Uh, but it was just uh, what what a, an incredible time, and uh, you know uh, you, you, we mentioned some of the guys that passed through the AWA, and, and at some point or another everybody would come through. But uh, I know Nick Bockwinkle was a, a big influence on you, and and uh, you know, and I I only had the chance when I worked with Nick, he was uh, a, you know an agent with the WWF at the time. But yes, uh, uh, you know I I don't know what he he was like as a wrestler. I just hear the stories. But what was it about him? And he helped launch a lot of careers. I mean, Hulk Hogan was one of them. But absolutely, uh, yeah. What was it, what was it about Nick back then that I, I wish I would have seen him in the ring? When Nick came to the AWA territory, uh, and this is in the fall of 1970, I had read about him in the magazines, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily jump out at you. He had been wrestling in yeah. Georgia uh, prior to him coming to the AWA, and I did a kind of nondescript, and I, you know, I, okay, when Nick Bockwinkel is coming to town. Well, his TV personality and his aura and his persona was completely different than anything we'd ever seen before. Uh, you know, he came in as a heel, but he wasn't ranting and raving and screaming. Now, all of a sudden, you had this intellectual and, uh, you know, using the million dollar words and referring to the fans as the humanoids and the eight to five, you know, white soxers and, and what have yeah. you. So the heat that Nick generated when he came in with the pompous, arrogant attitude was off the charts. The other Part of Nick that was so tremendous, Sean, is his ability to make the other guy look good. Yeah. Uh, you know, people talk about how great Ric Flair was. You know, I'm a Ric Flair fan. I, I enjoy Ric Flair. But to me, so much of Rick's matches were the same over the years. You know, very predictable spots and what have you. Nick wasn't like that. Depending on who he wrestled, uh, it comes to mind uh, Rufus Jones, or he'd wrestle the Crusher, Mad Dog with Sean, somebody like that, um, or he'd wrestle a Billy Robinson. He was able to adapt his style where he made them look like a million bucks. And as a champion, if you hated the guy, you always left the building thinking, you know what, he didn't get him this time, or you know the babyface didn't get him this time, but damn it, you know he's going to get him next time. Bockwinkle escaped by the skin of his teeth or whatever. And that, to me, was the mark of a champion. Uh, to make the other guy look good, he carried himself as a champion. Uh, very intellectual. The Bockwinkle that you saw on TV was really the way he conducted himself outside the ring. So, uh, you know, and, and again, a guy like Hulk Hogan. Boy, when, when uh, Hulk didn't win the strap from Bockwinkle back here in, I believe, 1983 or whatever, it was as close to a full-scale riot as I've ever seen in Minneapolis. So, uh, you know, and then pairing them with Bobby Heenan, that was the icing on the cake. That was a stroke yeah. of brilliance. And to me, and, you know, again, I'm you know very biased, but I think Nick is probably the greatest champion that I ever saw, bar none. You know, and, and uh, uh, the AWA was certainly played a big role in Hulk Hogan's career. Um, but how how did uh, Nick play a role in that? And I think you just kind of you, you touched on it here. But you know, it wasn't long after that that uh, that Hulk would really be launched on his way, and of course WrestleMania, and then history from there. But uh, how big a role do you think he played in in getting him there? I think it was it was tremendous. When Hulk came into town, you, you can't imagine this guy's popularity. I mean, people people watch the WWF, WWE, and they know the Hulk Hogan when he arrived on the scene there. But when he came into town, into the AWA area, I'd never seen anything like it. With all the, all the baby faces over the years, nobody got the kind of response that Hogan did. Wow. As a result... You could tell then. Yeah, it was it was amazing, and as a result, the fans really thought this time this is the guy that's going to win the title. Uh, there was no question in anybody's mind that sooner or later Hogan was going to win the AWA title. Well, Vern's philosophy was, 
you know, he first of all, he trusted Nick explicitly because Nick had been a very, very loyal employee all those years. Again, uh, you put Nick in the ring with anybody and he's going to carry him and make him look good. So Vern's philosophy was Hogan doesn't need the title. You know, he can keep chasing the title. He doesn't have to have it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as history will bear out, whether or not there was a smart decision on Burns' part or a not-so-smart decision, whatever. Uh, but the matches that Hogan and Nick had together, and Nick sold his ass off for Hogan, um, they were tremendous. So uh, they played off of each other very, very well. And I think that may have been, I mean, at, at that point, considering how great that feud was going and the numbers that St. Paul and all over the AWA were drawing with Hogan and Bachwinkle on top, that may have been an impetus for Vince to say, all right, now's the time. Let's pull the trigger. We're going to get this guy. Yeah. And, and you, and you mentioned, uh, you know, of course, Hulk and, uh, he would go on to, uh, great heights. I mean, we, we could, <laughs> we don't have to really go into explaining that, but there were others. Yeah. You mentioned Bobby Heenan and, uh, and Bobby was great in another way. Uh, as far as promoting talent and did you see early on with him, uh, just how great he was and uh, the talent that he, that he possessed right from the very beginning? Uh, there's no doubt about it. And this is of course, when he came to the AWA, he had worked for Dick, the bruiser before he came into the AWA, but he was here actually going back as far as the late sixties, but as time went on, his brilliance, I mean, literally his brilliance became so obvious. Um, nobody got more heat as a heel ever than Bobby Heenan. Um, just extraordinary. And as a wrestler, too, not only as a manager, Nick mm-hmm. used to say, yeah. if he and Ray Stevens were booked for a town and one of them couldn't make it and the promotion put Bobby Heenan in as a replacement, Nick said the match was much better and the crowd was much more excited having Bobby in there than they were either Bockwinkle or Stevens. And that's really saying something. Uh, I think Bobby is in a class by himself. Everything he did, whether or not it was managing or, you know, wrestling or whatever it did, or, you know, when they kind of made him a a comic foil uh, with Gorilla Monsoon, I think the guy was absolutely brilliant. And I think in a lot of ways, he may be the best all around performer ever in wrestling. He could do everything. Yeah, and you mentioned that that I don't, a lot of people don't talk about how great Bobby was in the ring. But you look back at, uh, for example, those weasel matches and uh, yeah. the bumps he would take and the oh. and the reactions that he had. You know that he would be out and then he'd wake up and it wasn't. It was you know you it was you bought it and and he really the some of the bumps he used to take the ring. I used to just be blown away. I was like, geez, I never you know because I didn't know his background that how much time he spent in the ring and uh, he could take a bump of the best of them. To me, I, w- one of my favorite moves, and I, I don't know if you remember this offhand, there would be the one where uh, Bobby would get whipped into the, into the corner, into the turnbuckle, and he would go up and over yeah. the top yeah. of the turnbuckle onto the floor without grabbing onto a rope, without doing anything, just one fluid motion. And uh, it was absolutely amazing. And as you said, he bumped, for everybody and he made yep. everybody look good um bobby of course playing the, the consummate coward uh you know would get into the ring you know he'd do the back pedal and then he'd you know jump over the top rope or whatever uh there was nothing that the guy couldn't do and i, I think people really wanted to love him but by the same token you know they figured you know this guy isn't so tough so they didn't fear him and it was okay to you know to, to boo him the way they did although that in itself translated of course into some terrible incidents i mentioned that one in chicago uh where the fan was shooting at the ring towards bobby yeah Yeah. um if you look at some of bobby's early publicity pictures there's one scar that he has going literally all the way across his forehead and that wasn't a self-inflicted wound he's walking out of the ring one night in chicago sean excuse me and a, a fan again i use the term loosely is waiting for him in the hallway and took a claw hammer with Jeez. the claw end and nailed Bobby right between the eyes. And uh, this is, this is again, pretty typical of what was going on back in the era, especially in Chicago, uh, where this happened. But uh, Bobby was fearless to a fault and uh, just, just a phenom in, in yeah. all aspects. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, and his announcing too. And I always talk about you know him and uh, Gorilla team together. And I know you act, you actually had a chance to sit next to him uh, with microphones on. Uh, but and, and we'll get into uh, some of the the work he did uh, behind the mic. But we talking about another great performer who wasn't necessarily one who got in the ring once in a while, but not too often was Gene Okerlund, who uh, uh, of course is remembered as one of the not just one of the greatest voices, but uh, one of the greatest stick men as far as interviews went. And uh, he he was from uh, Minnesota, and uh, yeah. a, another another guy. You know, he's a, he was a basically a salesman and. Uh, boy, could he. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. You know, uh, my first recollection of Gene, he actually was a disc jockey, a yeah. top 40 disc jockey on a radio station in Minneapolis back in the, you know, the days when the, the Beatles were big uh, in the 1960s. And he called himself Gene Leader, uh, the lovable leader, Gene Leader. Uh, he was, That was his, his radio name. And, you know, Gene just fell into the position again. You know, it was one of those situations where uh, Marty O'Neill, the longtime uh, Minneapolis announcer, had been taken ill and had a couple of heart attacks. And they put Gene in front of the microphone. And when I first saw him, I got got to say, you know, this guy, boy, talk about a carny, talk about a a carnival barker. But, man, he fell into that role and he became so comfortable with it and it became so easy for him. And I think that's the legacy of Gene. You could tell he loved what he was doing. His interaction with the guys was uh, beyond. I go on YouTube sometimes and I'll look at the Gene Okerlund uh, botches and bloopers and, you know, outtakes and so forth. Uh, absolutely legendary. And uh, yeah, again, another Minnesota guy. I got to know Gene a little bit uh, over the years. Always very respectful, very fan friendly. And he's an icon, no doubt. Yeah, as I often say, you know, there's uh, there's Gene, and then there's the rest of us. Uh, you can't there really you go. put anybody up there. I mean, seriously. And uh, you yeah. know, I had the the great fortune to work next to him for those years that I was there. But uh, it really is amazing to me that when you think of all the talent that ha- came out of that area, and uh, you know, uh, we've mentioned just a few of them. But what what is it? And let's talk a little bit about your career that. Uh, got you into wrestling and i guess at a very young age uh oh, was it uh, you've already mentioned some of those of those memories you have but but what caught your attention what got you uh into uh, following wrestling as a young kid you know i think pretty much like everybody else i happened to turn on television and flipping channels and then all of a sudden there's wrestling <clears throat> yeah. and uh i'm hooked immediately and this i was nine years old <clears throat> excuse me nine years old at the time <clears throat> And one half of the AWA tag team champions was Tiny Mills back in the day. <laughs> a big six foot five inch lumberjack, and, and he and uh, Stan Kowalski were champions when I started watching wrestling. And so I hear I flip on the tube and I see uh, Marty O'Neill, who was our announcer, is about five seven, five eight, and Tiny Mills is massive. And he's got Marty O'Neill and he's shaking him by the lapels, demanding a match with Vern Gagne, what have you. Well, you know, I'm nine years old and, you know, I got the Roadrunner and I got Mickey Mouse on the other stations, but I got I got this guy beating up on this little guy here, and I was hooked for life. I mean that that was it. Um Started publishing some fan newsletters when I was 13 years old. That was back, way back, obviously, before the Internet, when wrestling fans, the the means of correspondence was through the wrestling magazines, through the fan club pages. Um, You'd exchange programs and newsletters and so forth. So, you know, I put out a couple of rinky-dink wrestling newsletters on uh, on my little mimeograph machine or whatever it was at home. And uh, ran a fan club for Crusher Lasowski in the '60s, and um, but I, I, right from day one, I have just been absolutely enthralled with the business. Took me a couple of years to realize what wrestling was all about, despite what you know my folks and my grandparents were telling me. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to believe it, yeah. but it's it's when the reality hits and you you finally accept what the business is that you really get that appreciation for what these men and women do, how they have people in the palm of their hand uh, from their athleticism to their, to their acting ability, to whatever it is, the charisma, uh, they're a breed among themselves. So I, I was just hooked and enthralled right from the beginning, right from nine years old. 
Yeah, you know, and and everybody has that. Uh, I guess they call it the you know the smart when they become smart. But uh, as you said, I mean, it, in in some ways, it it gives you even more appreciation of what they do. And to me, it's always been entertainment. To you know everything yeah. that to me, it's like what entertains me. And then when you think what these guys are able to do and take you on a ride. And back then, I mean, you talk about storylines and being able to control a crowd. Some You look back at some of the matches where these guys, they might be, you know, 60-minute uh, matches, and they could do, an, uh, you know, an arm bar for three minutes. Or, you know, and, and the crowd were, was just enthralled because oh. these guys were such magicians with how they controlled how people felt. They they. they it, it coursed through their veins. They knew exactly what the, the best could do is they knew when they were, they needed to bring them down. They knew how to bring them up. They knew how, and by the time they're, they get to that climax, you know, they're exhausted and then they deliver. And it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, especially people who grew up during that time, that's what they miss more than anything. It's not that the, uh, we don't, you know, we see incredible athleticism today, right. but it's the storytelling that was just incredible because now you look at those matches and you go, how, you know, you show that to somebody today, they, you know, the, the two minutes, their, their eyes are glazed over. We're back. To Absolutely. Just, you know, no, you, you, you are, you're so right. You know, and <clears throat> you mentioned the, the psychology of it, oh, taking God. people on their roller coaster ride and telling the story. If, if you had a high spot or two or three in a match, um, that was it. Uh, if if a guy put somebody else in a pile driver, it was over. If you got clotheslined, it was over. Yeah. It was it was building that crescendo to the finale, to the Ganya sleeper hold or the drop kick or whatever it may be. And now you see that a million times a match. And uh, to your point, Sean, absolutely. I sat with somebody and showed him some YouTube videos of some stuff from the 1960s. And I thought, this is great stuff. And they're thinking, I don't get this. I don't get yeah. this. How come they're not coming off the top rope? How come yeah. they're not this? How come they're not that? Well, the reality is <clears throat> there's no psychology. There is no real storytelling today. The line between heels and baby faces, you know, as well as anybody, is completely blurred. Mm -hmm. uh, even when Hogan came into the AWA back in you know 1981 or 80, whenever he came in, the intent was to make him a heel. But the fans weren't buying it. They yeah, just it's a whole of... different crowd. It's a Road Warriors crowd. Uh they'll turn on Roman Reigns, they'll turn on John Cena. So to explain the way it was back in the day to the modern day wrestling fan, without the pyros, without the five hundred thousand dollar TV tapings, when it was just four lights above the ring, guy came in with no entrance music, and then they took the fans yeah. on the ride for anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes and they set yeah. up the next match the rematch the blow-off match whatever it was there's yeah. no description of how great it was yeah no and it really is incredible and you know they can't go back to that uh, i mean uh, that's obvious the way uh, people's attention spans are today but right. i really do think that there can there could be a better appreciation of storytelling because oh. you know after you come off a balcony uh, and do a flip into a crowd of, you know, <laughs> of people and chairs and okay. So now what, I mean, you know, exactly. uh, and, and it, it, not that it isn't just an uh, incredible athleticism, but I, you know, I go to a movie, take me for a ride. I, I, I come to a, a match. I want, I want to be entertained. Show me, tell me a story. Well, you know, so much has changed about the business, Sean, that that's played into that too. Yeah. I mean, the, whether it's the shoot interviews or, or the behind the scenes stuff or, you know, everybody knowing what it is and the fans have become so much a part of it. I mean, literally, or they think they're a part of it uh, to the point where they hijack some shows, you know, with their chance or, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, the, the, the ladies are in the ring. You can have Natalia working her ass off against somebody and the fans are chanting for CM Punk. What yeah. that tells you is that they're not paying attention they're there to be a part of the spectacle and they're not engaged. They're not, they're not, uh, wholeheartedly involved in feeling for the baby face or for the heel. It's part of the show. It's like the sitcom. It's like a, a weekly soap opera, whatever it is. So in that sense too, 
the eras are totally different. And what's interesting about it, I've had some people say, you know, well, every, everybody has always known it's fake. No, that's not. First of all, I, I bristle at fake because, yeah. you know, you get in the ring and somebody body slams you from six feet. I don't care. You know, if, unless you know what you're doing, it's going to hurt like hell. Oh, Choreograph, yeah, yeah. yes. Fake, no. But uh, people have to be invested in the product. And if they're not, then they do get bored. Even the fans that are, you know, sitting there at ringside with their chance. But to say people always knew, no, that's not true. I can tell you back in the day, and I'm sure you know this too, there was still that, that element of disbelief. There was no internet where you knew some guy was moving to another territory or he was having contract problems or whatever the case may be. So you had your own little uh, enclosed in, in circle of this is my promotion. You invested in it. Yeah. And it was just a whole different ballgame, totally different than what it is today. Yeah, and that's the word. You said they, they came invested. They, they were there, you know, like I said, ready to, to go for the ride. They, uh, you know, that's why they came. And they were, and they, and they were invested in those characters. Uh, and those guys lived those characters. Those guys back yes. in the days of the WWF, they didn't just step out of the arena and then, you know, got into the limo or whatever. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. we'll see you next week. Uh, it's, it's, it was a whole different world. It really is. And, and, and referring to that time for you, I mean, we, did you always, was it a dream of yours to become an announcer or was it something that you just got on the path from doing all these different things and somebody, they needed a ring announcer one night and then something else happened. How, was that always something you wanted to do? Always right from the very beginning. I mean, once I, once I started watching wrestling on a regular basis and watching Marty O'Neill, uh, I, I wanted to do that for about five minutes. I had, <laughs> I entertained the idea of actually wrestling at some point, but then, you know, <laughs> that, that quickly got squashed. I figured it's much safer, you know, behind the microphone, but it, it's something that I always wanted to do. And I always wanted to be in the broadcasting business, whether or not it was wrestling or not. I, you know, at times I wanted to be a top 40 disc jockey or, or a TV announcer or whatever. So that part of it, I always wanted to do that. But uh, Marty O'Neill was like a role model for me. And uh, I just, yeah, uh, th that's something I always wanted to do. And little by little by little, uh, I would start, you know, maybe calling matches in my own bedroom, you know, and, you know right, turn yeah, down the TV and, yeah. you know, and, yeah, and call the moves and what have you. And uh, <clears throat> that eventually, uh, you know, for me, I got a break uh, and, and I followed the dream. And I'm very lucky. Uh, middle 1980s, I caught a break with Eddie Sharkey's group uh, here in Minneapolis, and, and that started uh, that started the announcing world for me. But always wanted to do it. Did you have any idea that when you said you got you caught a break? Uh, you know that uh, with uh, AWA Championship Wrestling, I mean, like what a, a great opportunity with them being on a on a sports network. Uh, you know when you when you when you got that opportunity. Uh, were you, uh, I don't know, were you ready for it? Was it just one of those uh, opportunities and you're like, yes, I'm here, I'm ready. I mean, how oh, did that I was happen? ready for it. I, believe me, I was ready for it for a long, long time. And Wally Carbo, uh, the Minneapolis promoter, was kind of a confidant of mine. And, uh -huh. you know, he knew that I wanted to get into the announcing business. And he said, you know, you got to be patient. Uh, you know, something will happen for you. Sometimes there'll be a break for you, what have you. Um, I, I was kind of my own worst enemy in kind of a strange way because I would go to the AWA TV tapings at the, uh, at the Kellen beach hotel, the, the old studio matches. Mm -hmm. And there was a group of us that would cheer the heels. And this is back in the day where you just didn't cheer the heels. And we would, we would drive Ganya nuts and we would, you know, they, they just hated us, um, that we were making that much noise. So I kind of figured, well, you know, I, I, burn this bridge, you know, they're never going to look at me or take me seriously, you know, if I want an announcing position with this group. But I kind of cut my teeth working for Eddie Sharkey's PWA. And I was always ready, like I say, interesting how it happened. In 1986, um, the, the fall of 86, Sharkey's group actually ran a show, or they were called to do a show up in Winnipeg, Canada, for a guy named Tony Condello, who had been an AWA enhancement wrestler in the 70s. Now he ran his own promotion 
in Winnipeg, which was an offshoot of the NWA. Really, really offshoot. I should make that clear. Uh, but we were doing TV for Sharky, myself, and, and George Shire, another uh, local wrestling historian. We got the call to come up and do TV. And I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to have somebody take a look at this tape and see and critique it. And am I just, you know, trying to stick jello to a tree here? Or is this something that I can really pursue this dream? Mm-hmm. So George Shire and I called, of all people, Nick Bockwinkle uh, over to George's home because we had been friends with Nick for years. And we said, no, we, we just want you to watch this. Tell us what you think. So Nick comes over there one Sunday afternoon and we're watching the TV tapings from Winnipeg. And, you know, he's kind of nodding his head and I'm not, you know, saying a heck of a lot to him. And at, at the very end of it, he said, you know what, if you guys can get this crap over, and it was horrible, I got to tell you. If you guys can get this crap over, you can do anything. Yeah. I think, okay, well, that's, you know, kind of a left-handed vote of confidence. Right, but still, yeah, right. it's a vote of confidence. About six months later, I was working at a full-time job, 40 hours a week, doing customer service in Minneapolis, get a phone call. And it's Greg Gagne. And Greg says, you know, and I had known Greg for years, but not, not real close, just kind of a hi, how are you kind of a relationship. And he said, I'm calling to see if you would be interested in doing some ring announcing for the AWA. We're going to start uh, doing regular TV tapings at the Showboat Hotel in Las Vegas. Um, you know, Nick Bockwinkle put you over to me. Um, you know, I know of you. I've seen you around for years. Would you be interested in coming down and auditioning to be the ring announcer for the AWA? And this is probably June of 1987. I said, absolutely, I would. Yeah. And I went down to uh, to their TV studio, did some auditioning, and got the call and debuted as a ring announcer for the AWA in August of 87 in Minneapolis. And then uh, for probably the next six, seven, eight months, I went out to the showboat in Vegas and did their regular tapings. Uh, to your point, it was a thrill. It was like I went from the frying pan to the fire at, at yeah. one point, and all of a sudden I'm on ESPN on national TV. And here we are, dream come true. And how did the uh, opportunity to do some commentary come up, come about? Well, it, it's interesting. I had approached Vern, actually, uh, as we were flying out one time, and I said, you know, I, I love doing the ring announcing for you, Vern, but I have done this and this and this for Eddie Sharkey's group. I've done this for a while. I'd really like to maybe sit in and do color. Uh, it was Rod Trongard who was the AWA play-by-play guy at the time. I said, I'd love to work with Rod. Well, Vern's response in typical Vern fashion was, what makes you think you're a better color commentator than I am or Ray Stevens is? (laughs) And I just kind of shook my head and I said, you know, Vern, I'm I'm just throwing it out there. So long story short, they were doing a storyline where Kurt Hennig and Greg Gagne were involved in a feud Vern was doing play-by-play, but they did a storyline where he just couldn't possibly call a match objectively if Kurt Hennig was in the ring. There was too much mm-hmm. animosity. And they said <laughs> to me, would you want to sit in and do some color commentary with Rod? And by God, there it was. And mm-hmm. I just uh, went in, just dived right in, and had an opportunity to do that with the AWA for the duration of the time that I was there, they would put me in periodically. And uh, I enjoyed that far, far more than the ring announcing. Yeah. Well, and and it's so interesting that uh, you tell your story, but everybody's got a story like that. Uh, I think that uh, when people who are fans and maybe uh, have wanted to become announcers or, and they always say, uh, you know, yeah, there's no way I could do that because this, you know, this guy probably, uh, you know, started doing this in high school and then he did college broadcast and, you know, came up through these incredible ranks. And most of the time, somebody's got a story where they were just in the right place at the right time. Uh, they were persistent. I will, there's no question about that. Uh, and they just didn't go away, which is a lot of people, you know, but yeah. that's what it takes. But that, but a lot of times it, it, that's the way it happens. It, there's just, uh, you know, you've got to pay your dues, but at the same time, a lot of times it's just, it's something happens and you get that opportunity to jump in there and you sink or swim. Yeah. And, and, you know, and to your point there too, Sean, it, that's what happened yeah. with Oakland. That's what happened with Ken yeah. Resnick. 
That's what happened with Eric Bischoff. Uh, you know, it, it's just, again, right place, right time. With me, I kind of look at it as, yeah, it was an opportunity, but at the same time, it was the timing of everything. Uh, it was really a revolving door of announcers at that time in a lot of places. And I'm not so sure had the AWA not been kind of struggling to maintain their balance and you hang in there uh, as Vince was taking over. I'm not sure that they, I would have gotten the call. Uh, it was just they were going through a lot of systematic changes from top to bottom. So, yeah, right place, right time, and, and whatever the timing, um, it worked out for me. Yeah, and, and, you know, you look at all the things that you've done. I mean, obviously, not just the love for wrestling, but talent. I mean, uh, I, I you know, I look at some of the, the list of things that uh, you were involved in over the years, and uh, not only being a talent, but also uh, you had to have some kind of, uh, you know, business sense, uh, marketing sense uh, to have been involved in all these things, you know, host and creative director Saturday Night at Ringside, uh, you know, involved with the the IWA. Uh, I mean, just the list goes on and on. And, and I don't know if that was from the School of Hard Knocks or was, was that something that you had uh, an acumen for, you know, from early on? Where did that come from? I th- Well, I, I think the opportunities came seriously from word of mouth, people that I knew, which again is pretty typical, I think, in, in this business. Um, you know, somebody would say something to somebody else. The one thing that I didn't do, and I don't know how atypical I am, I never sent out tapes. I never sent out audition tapes, videos, audio tapes, nothing to anybody. And in that sense, you know, I don't know, was I don't think it was for lack of confidence or that I wasn't ready. I just, I didn't do it. So a lot of the breaks that I got were because, again, I knew somebody. Uh, the Saturday night at, at ringside thing, a perfect example. Uh, I had just left the AWA. This is in early 1988. And I got a call from Paul Heyman, who was doing his managing as uh, Paulie dangerously at the time. And we had worked together in the AWA. And Paul said, you know, there's a Joe Pedicino down in Atlanta is hosting a four-hour wrestling block that they have down there, and they want to move that kind of format and wrestling block to the Twin Cities. Would you be interested in going in and hosting that kind of a show and doing, you know, segues from one syndicated show to the other one? I said, absolutely. So I called Joe Pedicino, went down and auditioned, and got the gig. But again, it's because I knew Paul. Um, when I started working for Eddie Sharkey, I had some contacts and Eddie had known me for years. Um, and Eddie one day said, Hey, we're thinking of taping for cable television. You think you could go in and announce some matches? Yeah, absolutely. I just happened to be there. So I wasn't aggressive over the years in pursuing this. A lot of it just fell into my lap. And, uh, that's why I say I've been blessed and very fortunate, all things considered, you know, that I, I made it as far as I did without actually actively pursuing something. Yeah, and uh, it, it seems like you had some help along the way. You mentioned uh, a lot of these uh, of these greats, these legends in the business. Who, who really, though, as far as mentors who helped you out along the way, who are the ones that really stand out to you? Well, Nick, for sure. Uh, yeah. and, and what's interesting about Nick is for years and years, he knew what I knew, Sean, but I never broached the subject with him about the business. And I think in that sense, I gained his trust. So he put in a good word for me. Um, Stan Crusher Kowalski, uh, the late Stan Kowalski, was a great friend of mine. He pushed for me. Eddie Sharkey, Wally Carble, the, uh, Larry Hennig. Larry always spoke highly of me. And, you know, I can't thank him enough for that. So uh, I, I had some good people, some people with experience and a lot of years in the business that vouched for me. So in that sense, I was very blessed. Yeah, and and uh, you look back. I mean, uh, you've been a part of this for how many decades now? Oh, uh, I don't know. If, <laughs> at the beginning, did you ever think that you know this would base this is how this would be your life? <laughs> no, never. Yeah, um, it's amazing. And and I mean, there there's been good times. There's been you know not so good times, and the yeah. business has changed, of course. But I've always had some kind of 
some kind of foot in the door. I was always doing something with the business, even mm-hmm. if it got to be doing a show on cable television or announcing it independent wrestling shows. This is my 35th year doing this. And somehow or other, there haven't, hasn't been too many times where I haven't been doing something or have been involved at some point with something in the business. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's in the blood. Uh, Nick used to call it a sickness. You know, it's a, it's a sickness for which there is no cure. And yeah. uh, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, this is this is me. This is who I am, and it's what I've done. And it, it, is, it is amazing because uh, either you're pursuing it or it, it comes for you. It comes back for you. you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's very you know, true. You know, it's amazing. Um, when, when you see what's going on today, and we, we, we see uh, – uh, you know, these other, other organizations, AEW, um, you know, you see some of these, uh, uh, you know, NWA now they're, they're going to have studio shows, uh, this population, pop, uh, popularity growing in, in, uh, we see a, a younger audience getting involved. The MLW is another one. Uh, yeah. what do you see out there now, as far as what's happening with, uh, you know, what we're seeing, well, we got Wednesday night wars again, uh, you know, yeah. it's a different night, but, uh, what do you see out there now? Well, I think it's a good it? thing. Yeah. I, I think it's a very good thing. You know, and I watch AEW and uh, NWA. I think what happened is that Vince got a little complacent and mm. the WWE product and creative got complacent. And you know, certainly they're not hurting financially, but I think this is kind of the same thing revisited as what happened with WCW and Nitro back in the day where WWE was coasting and they were the only game in town. And then all of a sudden, because their product became watered down and they weren't as uh, edgy or whatever it is, the product started to tank a little bit. And, and all of a sudden, these, these upstarts, they, they grabbed hold. And I think that's what's happening right now, especially now. I know that uh, WWE just did a pay-per-view the other week, The Hell in the Cell, which was ripped and panned yeah. uh, by the critics as far as, you know, the main event or what have you. So very fortuitous that the AEW, you know, is debuting and premiering their stuff at the same time where arguably the WWE is at a low ebb or, you know, not finding favor with their viewing audience. So I think it's great for wrestling. Wrestling has always been cyclical. There's always been ups and downs yep. where the crowds are great, and then there's a lull, and then it, it picks back up again. But I think um, for the AEW and the NWA, they're getting the fans interested again, and I think that's a great, great thing. Yeah, and I kind of look at it that it's it's like an entertainment vacuum, that if there is uh, you know one lesson somewhere, it opens opportunity for these other organizations that are filling that and I think it's really exciting because it's it's forcing everybody to to you know step up their game, uh, including the the WWE. And uh, I I I don't see how there's a lose lose in this for anybody. I think that no. uh, it's just going to make the the, the business better. There's so many more uh, outlets that these uh, these organizations can be a part of, not just you know between YouTube and we got Fight TV out there, and uh, you know now they're back on cable. Um, it's, it's really, it's just, it's, uh, I think it's just amazing. And I, and I'm, it's just, it's fun to watch. I'm really uh, having a good time kind of taking it all. It absolutely is. And when the AEW can get a Cody Rose and they can get a Chris Jericho and they can get a Dean Ambrose or Jack Swagger, what have you. Yeah. Yeah. People are really noticing. And when Jericho comes out and cuts a promo and takes a shot at WWE creative and gets a huge pop from the crowd, I think that's gotta be, that's gotta send a message to Vince. Uh, you know, it, 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 I don't think it was a cheap shot so much of it was reality. You know, your, your product right now is stale and people are interested. I think that arguably the best thing that WWE has going right now are the women. I think that, you know, they've come to the forefront. I think the storylines with the women are exceeding what the men are doing, which I, I think is great. But it has to be a wake-up call for Vince. For the business as a whole, I think it's tremendous. It's going to start a resurgence, and good for them. Good for the AEW, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you mentioned the women too. And I and you think back that uh, I know when when I was working uh, with the WWF, 
that, uh, you know, women were kind of a sideshow or they'd bring in, yeah. you know, like the like the midgets, uh, you, you know, they would when business was a little slow or something. And I know that there was even periods, I think, in between in the early 90s, they didn't even have a woman's champion. It was like this right. vacant you know, title. And you look at it now and, uh, you know, they like you said, they're just as uh, as popular as as these uh, male stars. And it, it's it really is. And it's very it's very entertaining. And I wouldn't have thought being from that old school that if somebody would have told me that, I would have said, really? That's what, but it is. And and they are uh, tremendous performers. And you're seeing that getting bigger, bigger. And and it's also, you see that other organizations. Now, I know that, you know, AEW is going to have ha, have this division. And they've got a lot of women, but they're expanding that as well. And it's, uh, it's, it's good all the way around. It's just amazing. You know, you had mentioned back in the day, the women kind of being an afterthought along with the midgets yeah. or whatever. You're absolutely right. I mean, when I was growing up, we might get one, maybe two visits from the from the lady wrestlers mm-hmm. in a year's time. And you're right; it always seemed to be either it was a holiday spectacular or it was when the business was slow and they wanted mm-hmm. to bring in a, a specific attraction. But you know, Vivian Vachon and Kay Noble and Don Lemke and Gene Antone back in the day. Now all of a sudden, and and what's good about it too is that the women aren't—they're not just valets. They they got rid of the pillow fights and the lingerie battle royal. Yeah. Now they're main eventing pay-per-views, and I would say you get a, a, a Charlotte Flair or a Becky Lynch or somebody like that, Sasha Banks in the main event, and they're working their asses off, and a lot of times they're stealing the show. So they're not just being given this on a on a silver platter because they can't work. They're outworking the guys on a lot of levels, and it's paying off for them, and good for them. Yeah, and uh, you, you have to go back and, and give credit to some of these women who came, uh, you know, along the way. And I, you know, I think of people like Sherry uh, Martell, uh, you know, sensational Sherry, and, and how she uh, led the way. I don't think gets the credit that she deserves that she oh, became no. as popular a superstar as uh, you know some of the headliners there, and how she paved the way. And and these these other women, you know, China, and uh, you know, it, it's. Back then, you know that, uh, and, and 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 I don't know if they get the credit at all, but they should be. They should get the credit uh, for paving the way because look what it's become now, and and it's uh, and it, it's just getting bigger and bigger. And we kind of got off to the, the the side here, but I think it's becoming an a, important part of what uh, wrestling is becoming now. It it definitely is, and like you said. I would have never imagined that the women, and this is not a, a sexist comment, it's just, the reality of it is, the way the business was, you would never yeah, imagine male that somebody would yeah. be so, yeah, they're, they're headlining pay-per-views. Uh, it, it's, it's extraordinary and good for them, and they've earned it, they deserve it, and they're tremendous, uh, just tremendous workers. Well, all the way around. And, uh, you know, uh, you look back, though, and I, you must look back fondly at those years of the territories and uh, the, those real those glory days then uh, were just incredible. But it, it's it's great to see that after all these years, though, it's still alive and well and uh, and, and getting bigger every day. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's it's I mentioned before, Sean, it's cyclical. There's been yeah. down times in the business where you think, oh, well, this is it. Wrestling's dead. You know, the UFC and the MMA, and pretty soon there won't be any pro wrestling because nobody's going to care anymore, and that's not the case. And it takes something like an AEW or an NWA or the women or whatever it might be to revitalize and rejuvenate the interest, and uh, and here we are again. Now it's on the upswing, and it's great. Well, uh, Mick, I really want to thank you for, for coming on primetime and, uh, you know, thanks for, uh, all you've done over the years to, uh, continue this, this legacy and especially for, uh, you know, the, the great, uh, legends and, and the stories that come out of Minnesota, but, uh, you gotta be proud that you were, you were a part of that as well. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Sean, and I've always admired your work and to be on your, uh, on your podcast is, is an honor. And I really appreciate it. And just keep keep the old school memories alive. That's the name of the yeah. game. That's why we do this. Uh, hey, how can folks get in touch with you? What I would suggest, I, I've got a, a Facebook page. Uh, it's actually called Slick Mix Old School Wrestling. 
and uh, you just request to be a part of the page, and we put pictures up of the old-time wrestlers or the old videos or what have you, a lot of back-and-forth discussion about the territory days. And, and that seemed, you know, we got a few thousand people that uh, are on the page. Updated every day. Uh, there's never a lull. There's always something new. Uh, polls or surveys or contests or what have you. So, again, it's on Facebook, and it just look up uh, Slick Mix Old School Wrestling. And uh, there I am. I bet you. I bet you've got some great stuff. I bet you got some great memorabilia that you've held on to over the years. Oh, I have. I have, and it's not going anywhere. <laughs> All right, folks, check that out. I, I am. I for certain am. I'm going to become one of those those followers because I just I love to see those uh, that those old pictures and uh, uh, the other stuff that uh, that people put up. Old school, man. Old school rules, man. <laughs> you got it. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, man. Thanks for being on primetime. You betcha.